Once you reach 7,000 metres above sea level, your body is never warm. No matter how suitable your clothing is, your body just isn't burning enough oxygen and to trap and to heat your body. Every step hurts. You have constant headaches because of the altitude. Sleeping through the night is impossible. You're so nauseous that you have to force yourself to eat the energy you need to keep going. And you still have a thousand metres to the peak. For some reason, people put themselves through this willingly, gladly even. One of those people is Australian mountaineer Ali Pepper, who's currently in the middle of completing her goal of climbing to the true summits of all 14 of the world's 8,000-metre peaks without oxygen in the world's fastest time. Ali, welcome to you. Thank you. I think I'm out of oxygen just imagining I, this experience. I, you were reminding me uh, of how intense it is up there and that I'm going to be back there in, in a week. So thank you. It's not too late to pull out. No, of course you can't pull out. But altitude is a funny thing. And I've had the experience of being over 6,000 metres on a mountain and it plays with your head. It's a mental and physical challenge that you cannot describe to someone unless they've, they've been through it. What is it like? It's hard to breathe. It's cold. As in, I've been in temperatures around minus 60 degrees. When you're above 8,000 metres and you're walking, the act of walking is so difficult because a third of your energy is used in just regulating your body temperature. Your brain says, I want to go to sleep. And that was literally what was happening to me or my last summit on Broad Peak. I was like 50 metres from the summit and so close. All my friends were standing there happily embracing each other. And I took 10 steps and then I would sit down and then I would fall fast asleep until the Sherpa I was climbing with Lakpa tugged on my rope to wake me up. And then I would stand up and take 10 more steps again and then repeat that for 30 minutes to get to the top. It's often misattributed to Edmund Hillary. It was, in fact, George Mallory uh, whose answer to the question of why he climbed Everest was because it's there. There has to be other reasons why you do what you do. What are they? It's my passion. It's the fire inside me that uh, drives me because I just love what I'm doing and actually I'm an addict and my addiction is thin air. So what does that mean? It means that when I'm that high on the mountain, I'm that high, I guess, on life. So I feel most alive up there would be the best way to describe it. When you're close to death. Exactly. I don't go there to die. I go there to live. What are you hearing whilst you're up at that altitude? Is it the blood pulsing through your ears? Is, is it the, the, the voice inside you that's always saying no, 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 that you have to push through? Or is it something else? It's often nothing. And time will pass as if... An hour is one minute. And of course I have thoughts along the way and those thoughts can be, wow, it's really cold. I don't know if I can feel my feet right now. Can I keep walking? Just concentrate on taking the next step. 
Should I turn around? Yeah, constant questions. Oh, I didn't expect this part of the climb to be so hard. Oh, the wind's picking up. <laughs> Everything's so miserable. <laughs> I should just give up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like everything in your mind is telling you, like, what are you doing here, right? And it's to, I guess, keep in the moment and just deal with everything that comes up in, in the moment to quieten the mind. That is the key. I hope I can ask you a, a personal health question, but I know that you've also dealt with menopause uh, during uh, your training and, and, and the, that intrusion, if you like, on your preparation and your goal. How did the symptoms from that affect your ability to climb? The symptoms from menopause literally hit me like an avalanche. And I, at the time, which was two years ago, I actually thought that I wouldn't even be able to climb again on 8,000 metre mountains because they were so severe in terms of depression, uh, just waking up in the night. Of course, I'm used to waking up in the night on the mountain, but waking up in the night, like just dripping in sweat and completely alert, uh, brain fog. Yes, there's brain fog up there. Uh, it's similar in that respect, but to be able to feel like you can make the right decisions in the moment, you can't have, I guess, brain fog and depression and all the other, I think maybe 80 symptoms that went along with it because I had quite severe symptoms. So yeah. So for me, it was a shock to, to experience this. And the other thing that was very key, and cause you talked about training is the fact that I couldn't recover from training, no matter what I did with my diet no matter what I did with my training schedule, I just was always tired and my joints were aching and it was like a battle, to be honest. It was like climbing a mountain in itself. There is such a high risk of disappointment with these sorts of adventures. One of the biggest sources of disappointment is just the weather. You know, you have to take the right weather window and if you don't, that can disrupt the, the whole climb. It seems you have to be prepared for everything but also go with the flow, meaning sometimes you have to stay in camp and twiddle your thumbs. It must be a lesson in patience as well. It is a lesson in patience and, and I'll take that back to menopause because it, I had to be very patient to find the right treatment to actually go and climb again. And it took a long time for me to find the right treatment, to find a doctor that knew what to do to treat me and put me on the right treatment uh, which is HRT, and that gave me my life back. On the mountain, I have to be very patient because there is, you could almost call it a disease, which is summit fever. And I have seen many people suffer is in terms of have life-threatening injury or die due to it. And that's not what I'm there for. I'm there to live my dream and come back and talk about it. If you just join me on RN Drive, Mountaineer Ali Pepper is with me. Of course, part of that cost of preparing uh, and training 
is also engaging a guide or a Sherpa for the trip. You've climbed with Dawa Tenzing Sherpa a couple of times now. How key is the relationship, if you like, between you and, and someone like that? That person is someone that I literally trust my life to. When I'm up that high without oxygen, it is very difficult to make decisions. Let's face it. It is difficult for me to make decisions. And the Sherpa is using oxygen. And the Sherpa that I climb with, I have to, I guess, almost rely on them. It's sort of like a designated driver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I need to rely on them to go, look, this is not working. Like, you know, and ask me questions also. So also like uh, I just was on Everest uh, this last season with uh, Lakpa and he was constantly asking me questions. How are you going? Are you warm? Are you tired? And sometimes it's a one word answer, but he's checking up on me to even see if I can give an answer. That's one thing. What he recognized when I got to the Hillary set, which is, oh, sorry, not the Hillary set, I mean the balcony. The Hillary step actually isn't there anymore since the earthquake. Side note, mm. but but um, when I got to the balcony at eight thousand four hundred and fifty meters, we we came onto a ridge and came into the wind, which wasn't forecast. And that wind was just it, it hit me. What's very hard, like I said before, is like thirty percent of your energy is used to regulate your body temperature. So actually, you're ten times more likely to get hypothermia. So I kind of didn't understand, but I was starting to get hypothermia. I was just shivering uncontrollably. And I don't remember all of this, but Lakpa did radio the base camp and had a whole conversation, which I, uh, which I don't remember, and then gave me an ultimatum. Like either you put the oxygen on to go up or you go down. And that was a simple decision for me because I have submitted Everest with oxygen previously and I just said, that's okay, I'm going down. That's it. So I turned around and, and, and headed back down. That easy? Surely that – well, the, in the moment the decision might have been easy but have you had regrets since? Okay, I'm not going to say – I don't believe in regret so <laughs> I don't regret things in my life but – I was disappointed. Yes, I was disappointed. I was so close to the summit. And yes, it wasn't that we turned around, I guess, that because of uh, my energy level per se, but my energy level would have gone down anyway because I was so cold. And, and of course, all my body is using its energy to heat me up. But it was the weather and the conditions and my friends that did summit with oxygen that day, they actually said it was it was so so cold uh, beyond that time because that was like three in the morning. The two other people that that went up without oxygen that day out of the maybe I don't know eighty climbers, they didn't have a positive result. Um, very tragically, one of them went missing near the summit, hasn't been found. 
His name's Slizzard from hung- Hungary. And the other one, he actually got to the South Summit and collapsed. But he managed to have a rescue and, and get down and he's okay. But he actually did lose some of his eyesight and had a kidney failure. So part of you is actually thankful that these outcomes didn't happen to you this time. Not, not, notwithstanding the personal disappointment and, and the, the lost time and training and everything, there is the matter of cost. I mean, uh, Everest summits can cost upwards of $100,000. This endeavour is not a cheap one. H- how do you maintain and fund these adventures? It's not a cheap one. And I'm going to just be completely honest with you. I have put in a lot of my own money. I have. (laughs) Thankfully. It sounds like you're saying too much. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Um, But thankfully, yeah, in that respect, thankfully my father, uh, when he passed, left me a home that I could uh, remortgage to get me started. However, I am working on with my team sponsorships and I'm, I'm starting, I guess my business in terms of speaking, not starting, but, you know, doing more speaking and things like that when I'm not on the mountain, that's sort of my new profession, shall we say. Cause you've obviously realized how curious people are. I mean, you must get the same sorts of questions all over and over. I wonder if you've been asked this in the 20 odd years that you've been climbing mountains, have you noticed much of a change? And, and obviously the, the, the sport is so weather dependent. Have you noticed much of a change of, of, of the impacts of climate change on on mountaineering and this rarefied environment that you like to play in? Yeah, I have. I have noticed. Uh, there's been, I'll, I'll, I'll grossly gen- generalise the things that I've noticed and also talking to the locals over the years, they notice the changes more so more so than I do. But I would say the changes that I've noticed are there's more extreme weather events for longer so, example, a season like monsoon season, which I'm about to go back in, <laughs> can, like last year, it went a lot longer. I climbed to Camp 1 on Manaslu with an umbrella because it was raining. <laughs> and, and no one had even heard of that before. Like to have it, – it, it literally rained a week in the base camp and – the umbrella was like the best thing ever, basically. <laughs> People were stealing it off me <laughs> when they thought, were going to the toilet. Not, not, not crampons, <laughs> not ice picks. It's a, a lovely exactly. rain umbrella. It was, like the, it was like the key item of equipment. And, yeah, so what, so what I would say is like the seasons have been different to what they have been in the past. They... If, if it's a dry season, it's drier than ever. So there's a lot of a uh, lot more rockfall, a lot more avalanche than in the past. So some mountains where people would typically say, oh, that's an easy one, an easy 8,000. They're not that they're easy, but uh, technically easy have become a lot more challenging. As it stands in your attempt, where are you up to? What's the next peak on the list? Well, I just mentioned Manaslu. I'm going mm. back to Manaslu. So I summoned Manaslu in 2012 with oxygen. 
I tried without, but we weren't able to establish a high camp. So I wasn't able to climb size properly. So yeah, so that's next. Uh, and that mountain is sort of in between the furthest west 8,000 are called Dolagiri and Everest. It's in the middle in terms of where it is in Nepal. So that's next. And if that goes well, then I will head to Dalagiri, which is to the west of there. Very exciting. I hope you can drop back in, uh, bring in your umbrella uh, next time you're uh, in between adventures and tell us how it's going. Mountaineer Ali Pepper has been my guest. Thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you, Andy. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.